You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm Dr. Ethan Hutt from the University of Maryland, and this is episode two, the history of the student record. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and I'm excited about this episode because we're going to talk about the history of the student record. One of the responsibilities most commonly associated with registrars is the maintenance of the student record. And as we'll talk about when we discuss business intelligence in our next episode, also the stewardship of student academic data. But what is the student record and how did it come to exist in the way that we know it today? I'm joined today by Dr. Ethan Hutt from the University of Maryland, and we're going to talk about the history of the student record and the ways higher education institutions themselves shaped and defined it. So, Dr. Hutt, Ethan, if I may, thank you for taking yes, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, and so, just to kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I'm uh, as you said, I'm a professor at the University of Maryland uh, in College Park. And I'm a historian of education, and I'm particularly interested uh, in my research in looking at, I think about my research as interested in the numbers and the uh, tools, the metrics that we use to describe schools, to evaluate schools, uh, to track the progress of schools, whether that means equity or efficiency. And so, you know, I look at things like the history of grading, the history of testing, and like we're going to talk about today, the history of, uh, of student records. That's awesome. Fantastic. I appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. Um, let's talk about the student record. And you wrote a paper, or was it a presentation that got turned into a paper? Was it a paper first? It was, it was a paper first that I then presented to a, a group that was thinking about uh, not the history of the, of the student record, but the future of the student record. Excellent. And we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll lean in there uh, toward the end of our conversation today. But I also want to give you props for citing the violent femmes in your introduction, where this will go down on your permanent record. Um, And so what got you interested? You said you're a, um, a student of higher education, which is fantastic, a historian of higher education. And what in particular got you interested in the history of the student record? What's well, a really fascinating thing, you know, historians are always trying to figure out the right set of source material that will let us peer into the thing that we want to look at. And so, you know, I was doing all this reading about sort of early days of schooling, and I was interested in sort of looking at attendance and thinking about how, how did schools know that they were, they were any good? How, how did they know that their students were learning? And it started, I started reading um, all these educators in the 19th century, mostly uh, K-12, you know, common school educators who are really frustrated that they, um, they don't know who's in their schools. Uh, they lose track of students all the time and they don't know where they go. And so it, it got me thinking about, gee, we, you know, we think you, you mentioned the, the violent femme song. We now think of it as, as self-evident that our schools have all this information about us that I can go to my school and I can get them to send that information to another school that I want to attend or if I move. And when you look in the, in the 19th century, at least, none of that existed. And so I'm interested in saying, well, how did this actually develop? 
what were the tools um, that people saw records as uh, what were the what were they trying to use those records to do and you know what was on them and so I just got interested in this set of questions and you know it turns out and this is probably true your your listeners will appreciate this but you know when colleges you know are starting to get big at the turn of the 20th century it's often the registrars who are given all these problems by university presidents to solve yep and so you get these really interesting conversations among registrars about well, what do we do with all these students? And what do we do with all these courses that they say they're taking? And so all of that conversation gets sort of plugged into the history of the student record. And, and that's kind of where I entered the uh, uh, the space. So I was going to ask this later, but since you've already referenced it, uh, were registrars super important or the most important in the, the standardization they, of the student record? <laughs> registrars, like solving, solving university crises since, uh, since at least 1910. So... That's you right. know, you can you can you have a long lineage of of being, you know, the problem solvers of your institutions. No question. That's fantastic. I will take that snippet um, and use it as a sound wave that I send to all other administrators across my institution. I'm a problem solver. Maybe you can put it in like the footer of your of your email. You know, it's like problem solver. So just click on it and hear it. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, in your in the paper, the brief history of the student record. Um, you talk about sort of three processes or events or time periods um, that shaped the student records. Can you give us a quick recap of those three, sort of the early, the mid, and then the modern? I've stolen yeah, so, your thunder. Absolutely. So, so the first period of, of the student record is really defined by the sort of lack of records. And I was referencing this a little before, but, you know, prior to, uh, say, the turn of the 20th century, really is very little standardization in American education. So you have both um, a lot of schools that are standardized, almost not at all. So had a, a lot of local control, a lot of laws and rules allowed institutions to begin, um, whether K-12 or higher education institutions that, that were sort of allowed to exist, but with very limited uh, distinction between them and very limited um, uh, now we think of it as, as there's a clear hierarchy. There's elementary schools, there's middle schools, there's high schools, and then there are like junior colleges, colleges, grad schools. But that clean distinction really doesn't exist until right. uh, basically the first decade of the of the 20th century. And so what you have is you have a few institutions, and there are a few things that are interesting about those early institutions. One is um, in college, everyone took the same thing. So the idea of that you would pick your courses and that you know you would they would be worth a certain number of units, and you would collect units, and you would get a degree is really not how people thought about college. Everyone took the same thing. Um, grades actually in the early American colleges, grades are kept by the faculty, and they're actually kept secret from the students. Um, that is amazing. Yeah, so they would like they would they would un, they didn't want students to compete for grades. That was seen as sort of unseemly, um, and so you know at Harvard and Yale. The faculty would record it and you would only know sort of your standing on graduation day when you would be awarded either a prize or the opportunity to speak at graduation. And so this notion that the university is like diligently recording what you're doing <laughs> is really a, a later invention. And it's partly because um, people like Charles Elliott at Harvard, but it spreads uh, really quickly, decide that, OK, college, we can we can open up the curriculum and courses, as long as you spend the same amount of time studying a worthy subject, that's going to be equivalent. And so we get this idea that 
that there are units attached to courses, and that if you aggregate those units, then you get um, then you get a, a degree. And that's where you really get this impetus to try to write things down. Uh, you need to know what people took, how many course yeah. units those are worth, and you know people in like by the 1920s, people are are um, sort of uh, dismissively referring it to as like you know the installment plan of your of your credential where you're you're putting in to the to the registrar's bank a certain number of units each year um, and that you're you're sort of aggregating uh, towards a, a degree and so you know it's it's not really until the 1910s where you begin to say um, uh, we need to record these things we need to keep track of of our students and you know the registrar's office becomes uh, you know, Acro gets created in 1910, not um, right, not right. coincidentally, right? As as a, as a way of trying to to get a hold of this process. And then the last piece that sort of solidifies the system, the Carnegie Foundation, as a way of distinguishing colleges from high schools, uh, they say that a college is going to be defined by the sort of preparation of the students that it takes. So they say a high school student has to complete. 14 units of work and demonstrate that to the college. Uh, and if they accept anyone less than who has less preparation than 14 units, they suspected the Carnegie Foundation said, well, that's actually not a college. That's a college that's only pretending. And maybe they're actually running a high school. It was very common for colleges to have high schools basically attached to them. Interesting. And so they say, we need this sort of this record keeping to demonstrate that colleges are actually doing their work. And so that sort of early period where where schools are not keeping track um, is really the first period. Um, and that ends, you know, I, I sort of think of that as like, you know, the 19th century to about 1910, 1914. Yep. Um, and then the second period is uh, this big middle period where you you have what historians think of it as sort of the massive expansion of, of higher education. Yep. It's really punctuated by a few sort of important events. Um, we often think of uh, the GI Bill, the sort of post-World War II moment where- uh, Right. Everybody comes back and exactly. floods existing higher education. Yeah. yeah. And so one interesting part of that story that a lot of people don't know is that, you know, we think of the GI Bill, they're coming home, they're going to higher education, mass expansion of higher education. But- most of the veterans had not actually graduated from high school. And so you have this kind of interesting thing where, uh, again, registrars um, are trying to figure out um, how do we know and how do we accredit all the, uh, the prior educational work. And so a lot of people believe that, you know, the military had done a lot of correspondence education. The soldiers received a ton of training. Yep. And so they develop all of these tools. There's something called the Tuttle Guide after a uh, registrar at, um, he is at the University of Illinois, George Tuttle. And he actually creates this, it's a thousand page uh, volume that lists every training course in the military and the credit value associated with that course. And it's the sort of acceptance of the GI Bill is a simple story, except if you were in the registrar's office where you're trying to get Right. All the records of all these, you know, couple million GIs, you're trying to get their records, you're trying to get their military records to make sure that you can say, okay, this guy is ready for for college uh, education. And so you see this massive expansion of both the registrar's office um, and that goes with uh, the sort of massive expansion of higher education. And the other interesting thing that happens right in this period and it extends into the 60s is 
you know, if you think about the a transcript as not just a record of all the courses you've taken, but it's actually in some ways a compact between um, a set of schools, right? Yep. You're going to say, imagine a common scenario where a student has transferred to your college and they present your record, their record to you, and you're going to record some of that information onto your record and then add more information. And so there's this big debate as you get the expansion of higher education of, well, whose whose courses get to be added to that right. student record? Who are we going to recognize as being sort of peer institutions? Um, and you get the sort of the, the introduction of community colleges, you get the introduction of correspondence courses and other forms of education. And so there's a lot of that's happening, say, being like 1910 and, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, where you're just the shape of higher education is changing so much. And you see that in debates about, well, what goes on on the on the student record um, and registrars, like I was saying before, were often the on the front lines of trying to figure that that question out. Um, right. And. Exactly. Sort of the arbiters of what goes on the record, how is it maintained? Can, um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, completely. And, and so you think about, you know, people begin to say, well, you know, um, what about, uh, you know, what about the, uh, you know, certain life experience that's maybe informal education? You know, if we create a test that shows a competency, you know, should we put that on the record? Do we grant credit for those things? You know, those are really important decisions, both for institutions and, and for people. Um, and so those are, yep. you know, when you get sort of the the rise of the non-traditional student, you get the rise of a, of a sort of more... Uh, robust, a more flexible student record. And, you know, the other piece of that is, you know, we now think of it as we all know our social security numbers. We all know that we have these sort of unique identifiers, but it's not really until the 60s that um, colleges feel comfortable, you know, using things like uh, a student's social security number as a unique identifier. And it just tells you, uh, you know, it's not till the 60s that's, that, that you have a a higher education mobility among students that it becomes necessary uh, for colleges not to use sort of mom and pop systems, but actually like a unique record so that if a student comes back after 10 years and says, hey, I'd like my transcript, I'm actually moving and I'd like to finish my degree, that that becomes, that retrieval becomes, you know, kind of possible. Yep. And so before we move on from here, I want to um, jump back to one point that you made. You talked about the Carnegie Foundation. And I want to drill into the, do you say Carnegie or Carnegie? Carnegie. People say all all different ways. Yeah. Yeah. um, So the, we at American University adhere to the Carnegie unit where that is um, 12 hours of class per week with 15 hours outside. Nobody quote me on this. I'm going to edit this part to make sure that those numbers are accurate. Um, per credit. How did that come about? How, and I know that different institutions like Harvard still has course units. They don't follow the Carnegie standard. Um, But by and large, higher education has standardized on this idea that a three credit class meets for 15 weeks for a set number of um, hours per week, plus additional work that's expected outside of the class. So how did that happen? Yeah. So, I mean, so, so 
The first thing that happens is people say there's a big debate about, uh, it may sound familiar, where people are saying things like, well, do you really have to take Greek? Like, are there other ways that we can get uh, a student prepared to, you know, be a successful uh, white collar worker? And so there's a debate about sort of what are the, what are actually required? And so uh, people begin to say, well, I think a lot of things should be required. And the sort of the key that that undergirds the uh, uh, the idea of the credit hour is a sort of a, a, an understanding of education as a level of mental training. And sort of the assumption was that a rigorous topic, uh, I mean, a, a, a subject that's worthy of study, if studied for a certain amount of time, creates a rough equivalency among the among the different subjects. And so it's really this idea of a sort of mental training model that, that um, gives rise to this idea that the time is somehow relevant to the, to the study. From there, it's a, it's really a question about um, trying to deal with the problem of, like I said, mobile students and also so that, so that students are moving around. And so they're appearing having done some level of education and it's about knowing how to place them in a, in a system. But then the other piece of it is trying to create some notion of a, of a hierarchy of moving upward through the system. And so this idea that um, a college is defined by taking students, not who are just you know, have passed one class, but have actually passed a set of courses. And so this idea that that um, you're, you're accruing levels and that there's a sort of an aggregation towards a degree, um, that idea that you've trained enough that you have earned this diploma um, is really important for distinguishing uh, in, in the, at the turn of the 20th century, the high, what counts as higher education versus high schools. And that's where the Carnegie Foundation is really trying to distinguish between really higher higher education and just places that are calling themselves academies or places that, you know, they're really kind of like K or I'm sorry, they're like, you know, 10th grade through 14th grade or something like that. And they want to sort of suck out who was the real deal and who wasn't. Um, And this system, we often think of it as, as sort of clunky or that it hides a level of, um, of inequity across the system, you know, American university, you know, is so much better than, you know, my institution, maybe at Maryland. And so you would say, well, why are we, (laughs) why are we crediting these things at the same level? But, you know, there's, um, there's this, uh, uh, the flip side concern for a lot of people in the, in the, in the 20th century, that if you prescribe things too much, that you actually end up destroying the diversity in the system. And so what you have in the Carnegie system is, a deference to fellow institutions that you're going to respect that if, if you say it's a three credit course and you've hired the instructor to do it and they transfer to my institution, I'm going to honor that. Like I don't need to, and you see this a lot, especially as registrars are beginning to professionalize is there. If you read the minutes of your old meetings, I don't know why any of your listeners would do that, but if they did read the minutes of the old meetings, we we do a lot of random things that a lot of people might ascribe to uh, or describe as boring or minutia well, or perhaps even anal retentive. You know, okay, well then but let me recommend. I think they're know. all a lot of the old ones. A lot of the old ones are on like you know Google Books. <laughs> you can get them for free. 
And if you read around the World War, so after World War One, yep. there are huge debates, and after World War Two, there are huge debates, and they're they're really concerned uh, that to standardize their grading too much is actually going to going to be a, a deprofessionalization. And so there's this kind of fine line that you that registrars walk of saying. We need for the good of all of our institutions to have some level of standardization, but we want the sort of the quirkiness, the professionalism that allows us to, you know, be maybe a little bit arbitrary or to read, you know, more, more carefully into certain students' records. And so there's always a balance there between like too much uh, rigidity and uh, not enough that, that the system kind of falls apart or gets, gets ragged. That is fascinating. And I will go find those. Because that actually does sound really interesting. A couple of things, too. I want to ask you some questions about um, where you think the student record is going as well. So we've had these trends that have brought it into sort of this standardized piece. And now there's continued conversation about um, what a co-curricular transcript looks like, what information is included on that. Um, we've talked, you touched a little bit on this competency-based education and how do we capture and reflect that on an academic record? Does it belong on an academic record? Um, and would other institutions provide the same level of deference to a course that we are transcripting versus, um, you know, the competency-based things. So th there are a number of conversations that are going on nationally. Um, you know, ACRO worked with the Lumina Foundation to um, look specifically at um, the transcript and um, co-curricular transcript in in particular, putting learning outcomes. Um, there's a, a lot more digitization that is available um, in sharing the record so that when you, it's not like um, I would send my paper transcript to someone and they'd be able to click on the paper and have a pop-up that shows, oh, these are the learning outcomes from this course. I mean, right now the transcript in many cases is space limited. And a lot of times that results in very funny truncated course titles. And so like, what is the, what is the future of the student academic record as you see it? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and, you know, I will defer to your, your membership of figuring out what the, what the record looks like, but I do think there's some questions that you would want to think about um, you know, what, one key question that I think people who are who are thinking about the future of the record would want to be attentive to is this idea that, and you framed it really nicely, right, that that in some ways the record is truncated and it, it is sort of partial information. Right. But in the other hand, there are a lot of different audiences for that record. And the sort of there's there's something nice about a simplicity, right? People know what uh, what grades mean. They know what a, a basic level of, you know, if you say a three unit course versus a one unit course, some people have some sense of um, what that means and sort of the difference between those two courses and how they might be listed. Um, and so there's, you know, there, I think sometimes people get a little bit ahead of themselves when they, when they forget that it's not just an employer that looks at uh, a student record and it's not just another registrar that's going to look at a student record, like a, a right. family is going to look at a student record or a transcript at least. Yep. Um, and, and so I think, you know, thinking about 
making sure that the information that is presented doesn't overwhelm. There's lots of examples um, in the history of education, especially around people not liking grades and trying to move to narrative grades that capture right. more. And, you know, the, the, the sort of long and the short story of narrative grading is that almost always those projects fail because they're, they overwhelm with information. Yes. And they don't think about the sort of multiple audiences. You know, if I'm an employer, I don't need your Latin teacher going on at length about your translation skills in the narrative grade structure. What I want to know is like, were you good? Were you not that good? Where were you in your class? And so I think it's (laughs) sort of kind of parsimoniousness of of the form is something that even though there's like all this affordance of of the digital and the online and the multi uh, you know, not just text, but pictures, and everything, um, you know, you, there's still something to be said about, you know, like short and sweet. And so balancing that uh, yeah. and the multiple audiences, I think is one really key question. The other one yes, that I think I comes up a lot, especially as you talk about um, uh, uh, thinking about things that happen outside of school, you know, one of the things that, and we, we were talking about this before, but, you know, the student record is sort of a compact between schools. And, you know, there's a, there's a question about control when you think about what else might be added and by whom, right? So, you know, I think we think about like, oh, you know, should we let students inscribe on their, on their records about what they were doing or, or, the, or, or what projects they've performed? And, you know, as, as I'm sure, you know, you know, and, and, your, and your listeners know is, you know, the, the security of that document yes. becomes really important. It's you know, critical. if people are forging them, if they're not, you know, so I, I think there's a question. It's nice in, in the idea to open it up and allow other institutions or even students themselves to inscribe on their student record. But there's a real danger. And I mean, people trust transcripts because they know the chain of custody, essentially, yeah. and they trust the institution they come from. And so I worry a little bit that people sometimes underthink the importance of that trust in what's there um, and building in the layers are, uh, of, of, of trust or verification that would be necessary to open up the record, I think is something that, you know, people who know way more about this, you know, the sort of technical side of these things than I do really have to think through. Yeah. Um, because something we want is a more expansive record that is uh, less valued and less trusted by people um, out there who are going to be viewing them. Um, yeah, I think those are good considerations. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing, this is the positive. And valid. Yeah, and the other thing I would say, uh, and this is the positive, like, you know, go forth and do it uh, to you and the, and, the, and the listeners is that, you know, traditionally, you know, when I was telling like the history of all these things, these were problems that were solved by institutions and by professional organizations like ACRO. Yep. These were not things that were... Yep. Uh, solved by legislation or not? The, this wasn't a this wasn't a government led uh, thing. This was this was people who were in these offices dealing with these records, saying we need to standardize this or we need to come to some level of agreement. And so I yeah. think you'll see the future of the record evolve as groups of registrars or groups of institutions come together and say we both advocate and support. Uh, and going to encourage this new practice. And that's how you're going to see evolution on it. Um, You know, there's obviously, you know, FERPA and some other issues where government has said, you can't do this, you have to, you have some responsibilities around these issues. 
Yeah, absolutely. But that still creates a huge space for institutions to decide, you know, how best to serve their, their students and each other as institutions. I, I think that that's a critical point as well, is that I really like the idea that we, the registrars of American higher education, uh, have not just a say in what the student record of the future looks like, but really we're the we're the only group that is um, going to decide that, but we're not going to decide it individually as one institution or two or three institutions. It's going to be a, a broad collaborative effort um, to decide what a new standard might be. Um, if there needs to be a new standard, if the continuation of uh, how we're transcripting things needs to change um, or not. Um, and then the um, next point is that this service to each other, um, we have a, a responsibility to maintain the student record accurately for our individual students and for our alums. We have that fiduciary responsibility. But as you've pointed out a number of times throughout our conversation today, higher education also can't exist in a vacuum. And the way that students pursue their degrees, we all sort of need each other. And so we can't afford to go off and do crazy things one by one, uh, or the entire system may come crashing down. And that would be to the benefit of no one, not to the institution, not to registrars themselves, uh, and definitely not to our students and or alums. So I think those are really interesting points that you've raised. Yeah, I mean, I, do you, I think you yeah, go ahead. No, I think you nail it. I mean, it's, it's just it's thinking about those sort of multiple relationships um, and, and the credibility that's involved. And you said it exactly. It's like it's, it's not doing anyone any favors. And, you know, traditionally, I mentioned that that sort of guidebook that came out, uh, you know, in, in the, at the end of World War Two, that was trying to trying to standardize the credit awarded to it. And that was a really good. What a labor of love that. Oh, was. my God. The, the record um, where you you had this poor man was trying to get if you can imagine Imagine trying to get like, you know, you get your professors to send you, you know, descriptions of their courses. But these are, you know, these are military courses. They're getting, you know, they're sending them all yeah. around the country and they're just coming back in little bits of, of paper. Some are coming with full uh, sort of syllabi. Others are literally just scraps of paper like, you know, this was a Navy shop course. Uh, people learned how to do inventory. And you're like, well, how many units is that? You know, um, <laughs> But there was there was this real concern. They called it they they referred to it as um, they worried about uh, what they called blanket credit, where yeah. people were just issuing certain amounts of credit basically as participation uh, awards. And the concern was that there was there was going to be an incentive in order to attract students um, that that colleges would basically try to try to outbid each other. They say, well, you get three credits for the for the Navy course at uh, American, well, we'll offer six. And so there was a set notion that the sort of the registrar and assigning unit values was really holding the key to the degree and that it, it might debase the standards of the entire institution if you had kind of renegade uh, registrars just issuing credit uh, left and right. And so, you know, I mean, that's an extreme example. But but like you said, there's, there is a concern that... Um, in an era where we're trying to do things faster and cheaper and asynchronously, that if 
if institutes just start kind of throwing credit or throwing things on a transcript like they like they matter equally, um, that you might do something like, you know, kind of debase what it means, or you might lose the sort of the essence of, you know, all of this adds up to a degree, you know, and that this sort of it's all on it all matters because it's all transcribed. Yeah. And so I you know, people just have to think really carefully. These are really important documents in, in institutional lives and in people's lives, um, you know, and, and we want to approach that carefully. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be sharing this with you, but um, the renegade registrars, we have our own satin jackets. Oh, man, I was wondering if there was a handshake or, <laughs> or a row. Oh, yeah, we've got those. We've we've got those too. Oh man, maybe maybe I get I get like um, an honorary one, you know, that I just like. I'll see if I can okay. dig one up. I'll see okay. if I can dig one up. You have provided some outstanding information today and some high praise for the registrars of your. Um, so that might make you sort of an honorary renegade registrar. We'll see if we can. All right, find I'll keep my finger. Um, yeah. What is next for you? What What are your uh, research interests leading you to? Well, so I'm here? really interested in um, this is very much related to the student record. You know, I'm interested in thinking more about the data systems that we've used to work to track our students. Yes. So I'm, I'm working on a, on a project uh, funded in part by the Spencer Foundation and the National Academy of Education um, that's, that's sort of thinking about uh, the various systems that we use to track students over time. So we've developed longitudinal data sets um, in, the, in the late 50s, early 60s. The federal government decides like, it'd be great if we could follow students into the future um, and we'll, we'll know what they take now and we'll see where they end up later. And that way we'll have a better sense of what our education system is doing. Yep. And, you know, over time, uh, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but over time, the ability to uh, record information about students, to track information uh, and what we do with that, whether it's, you know, ask questions about equity, ask questions about efficiency, uh, effectiveness, and so I'm really interested in in thinking about sort of the 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 collection of information in the hands of of universities, of institutions, but also later the federal government, state government, and sort of thinking about all the things that we've done with it and how it's sort of shaped uh, the work that we do, how we've sort of reflected with the data to shape uh, you know what we do with programs, what we yep. what we do in terms of thinking about the value of of degrees. And so that's kind of what's next is sort of thinking more with these student records and kind of thinking about how they get aggregated and where they where they end up. I love it. I, I want to thank you for taking some time to talk with me today and to share your knowledge and expertise on the history of higher education and specifically how the student record came to be. Um, I appreciate this very much. Oh, no, thanks. It was my pleasure. And and like I said, you guys do really important work. So I'm happy to sort of shine light on the history and hope that, you know, in, in a few years, I'm, I'm reading about all the cool things that we're, we're doing with the, with the student record. Fantastic. Ethan, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. This was great. So there you have it. A brief history of the student record as told by Dr. Ethan Hutt. I'd like to thank Ethan again for sharing his expertise. It's a great story about the role registrars have played in the development of the student record and about our responsibility in shaping the student record of the future. Check the show notes page for links to Dr. Hutt's research, to the paper he presented on the history of the student record, 
and for some archival debates that registrars of yore had on this very topic. Thank you for listening. Please share a link to the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We have more insightful, educational, and entertaining episodes coming up soon. Send me your feedback at registrarpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk soon on the next For the Record. For the Record!